So how many of you have ever spent some time studying your family ancestry? Maybe a little bit, maybe you've done 23andMe or Ancestry.com, you've spent some time studying your ancestry. A few years ago, I started digging into my family ancestry, my family tree, and uh, I, did, I discovered some, some good things. Thankfully, I'm not related to any serial killer like Jack the Ripper or Ted Bundy or anything like that. That was good news. Um, but you always find some interesting things as you study your family tree. Probably the most interesting thing I found, or the most disturbing thing I found, is actually has to do with my last name. So my last name is Cloud, which is a shortened version of McLeod or McLeod for the Scottish clan that, uh, from which I originate. But the disturbing thing is that the name McLeod or McLeod comes from two Gaelic words that translate means son of ugly. <laughs> yeah. Everybody always laughs. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Jace, son of ugly. Which my children thought was really funny until I reminded them that they too have the last name Cloud. Um, so they'll just pass that on in their family tree. But I guess, yeah, you could say that I guess there's a lot of ugly in my family, which is the, the sad story here in my ancestry. But uh, you do, you learn a lot of interesting things as you study your genealogy. And that's what we're going to do together this morning. On the second Sunday of Advent, we're going to reflect on the birth of Jesus by studying the people, the ugly people. The ugly stories in Jesus' fallen family tree. So if you would please grab your Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 1. And I want to encourage you to grab your outline as well that's there in your bulletin. We have a very simple outline this morning. Uh, first, I'm going to read the verses for you. But then what we're going to do is we're going to take just a few minutes and highlight a few very interesting people in Jesus's fallen family tree. Five women and then one very interesting man. So again, grab your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 1. Let me begin by reading for you verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. The record of of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. 
Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiahud, Abiahud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliahud. Eliahud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Verse 16, if you've lost your place. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Whew. Now before we dig into a few of the details, just a couple 30,000 few comments here. Uh, First of all, for you and I, as we read this list here in Matthew chapter 1, this list is really nothing more to us than a list of kind of hard to read and hard to pronounce names, right? But I want you to imagine yourself in the first century because to the readers of Matthew's gospel, Jewish readers, these names dripped with history. History of the Jewish people, history of God's intervening grace on their behalf, and yes, history of ugliness. I want you to notice as well there in verse 17 how Matthew, as he's writing this genealogy, how he breaks it down. You can see there he explains in verse 17 he highlights three sections in Israel's history. Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian captivity, and the Babylonian captivity to the Messiah, to Jesus. And in each of those three sections, Matthew selects 14 of the most prominent names in each of those sections. Now, just for your information, this is a broken genealogy. In other words, Matthew skips over some generations, but he selects, he highlights 14 of the most memorable people here in these generations. Now, we don't have time to look at each and every person, so what we're going to do there on your outline again is highlight just a few of the ugly stories along the way. The first thing that we're going to see really with the first five names is Matthew does something very unique here in the genealogy of Jesus, and that is he includes the names of women. It would have been unheard of in the first century to list in a genealogy the names of women, especially for a king. But let's take a look at these first five women mentioned here in the genealogy of Jesus. These are women of scandal, women who have quite ugly tales to tell. Notice first, verse 3, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
So the first woman I want you to see here is Tamar. Tamar's story, by the way, can be found in Genesis chapter 38. If you want to jot down Genesis chapter 38 and read it later, I'd encourage you to. I will, however, issue you a warning. If you have children or grandchildren, don't read Genesis chapter 38 to them tonight as you put them to bed. Uh, It is a scandalous story that I promise you will raise many awkward questions for your children at bedtime. So let me give you just a quick summary of Tamar's story in Genesis chapter 38. In Genesis 38, we read that Tamar was a widow. Her first husband, a man by the name of Ur, died. The scripture tells us he died because the Lord killed him. Because he was an evil man. And because it was customary in these days, if a woman was left as a widow then her husband's brother would often take her as his wife as a way of making sure that the family line continued. And so in Genesis chapter 38, after Ur dies, Ur's brother Onan takes Tamar as his wife, but I'll spare you the details. He doesn't quite fulfill his duty. And through a series of very ugly events, Tamar is still left alone with no children, and Ur's family line is threatened with extinction. And so at this point, Tamar does something very interesting. She dresses up herself as a prostitute. She ends up sleeping with her father-in-law, Judah, And that's then how we get the family line continuing. She gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. This is quite a story. Tamar, a woman who disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, and by the grace of God, ends up in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, For your consideration for some application from this ugly story this morning, what I want you to take note of is that this ugly story of Judah and Tamar demonstrates how God's grace extends to anyone. I mean, let's be honest, Genesis 38 is a story you might expect to see on Jerry Springer, but it's not a story you might expect to find in the Bible, and yet there it is. And it's a great reminder to us, again, that God's grace is available to all, and God's grace is sufficient for all. God's grace is available to all, and God's grace is sufficient for all. And that's the first major point I have for you this morning. The second story I want you to look at, we find in verse 5. The first part of verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, we come to the second woman, Rahab. Verse 5 says, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Poor Rahab. I always feel bad for Rahab. Because now for hundreds of years in Sunday school history, children all over the world refer to her as Rahab the harlot. And she was. She was a prostitute. What we don't know when we read Joshua chapter 2, and that's where you can jot down Joshua chapter 2, what we don't know is why exactly Rahab 
entered into prostitution as a profession. But yes, we find her ugly story in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a resident of the wicked city of Jericho. So she was a prostitute in a wicked city. But before the city of Jericho was attacked by Joshua and the Israelite army, Rahab, Rahab of all people, protects Israelite spies who snuck into Jericho. And thus Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute in wicked Jericho, becomes a participant in God's strategy to give Israel the city of Jericho. It's an amazing story that in his grace, not only does God preserve Rahab's life, but here in Matthew 1, we see he also brings her into the ancestry of Jesus. As the mother of Boaz, the great-great-grandmother of King David, ultimately leading to Jesus the Messiah. Now, for your consideration this morning in terms of application, what we can take from this ugly story. What I want you to see here is the evidence that, that God is always bringing sinners like Rahab, like you and like me, into his story. That all of us are invited to participate in God's story of redemption. And in a sense, every one of us is unclean, just like Rahab was. But the good news is that Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, is bringing Rahabs like us into his new family. There is no sin and there is no sinner that is outside God's grace. There is no sin, there is no sinner that is so bad that God can't save you. And he's delighted to do so. The third name that I want us to look at this morning is also found there in verse 5. Picking up midway, it says, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is found in the book by her name, the book of Ruth. But what I want you to take note of this morning is that Ruth was a Moabite woman. Not only is she a woman in the genealogy of Jesus, but she is a Moabite woman. Moabites, by the way, were the offspring of another incestuous relationship between Lot and his own daughters. But in this particular line, what also becomes amazing is that the Moabite people were despised by the Israelites. They were the sworn enemies, some of the sworn enemies of the children of Israel. But what's amazing about the story of Ruth is that here this woman, this Moabite woman Ruth, we learn that after her husband dies, she clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She ends up moving into Israel and she becomes herself a follower of the one true God. Also, somewhat surprisingly, is on one particular night, Ruth approaches Boaz, who is asleep on the threshing floor. And scholars aren't exactly sure what goes on on that particular night, but she cuddles up next to Boaz. He, at least temporarily, rejects her advances 
But by the grace of God, they eventually marry. And then once again, Ruth finds herself in the ancestry of the Messiah as the great-grandmother of King David. It's another really interesting story. And for our application this morning, what we can take from this ugly story is I want to highlight again that Ruth was not only not Jewish, but she was a Moabite. And as a Moabite, she was one of Israel's sworn enemies. Moabites weren't even allowed to enter into the gathering of the worshipers there in Israel. They were complete outsiders, enemies of God's people. And likewise for you and for me, before the gift of Jesus, we Gentiles were outsiders, enemies and hostile to the gospel. And yet the good news that we're reminded of here in the story of Ruth is that we too, although once enemies of God, once outsiders, have been made friends with God and insiders. Next we find in verse 6, the story of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Notice verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And notice the commentary, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now Bathsheba's story we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and again, this is a very interesting story. We find Bathsheba has been taken by David. David sleeps with her, and then once it's discovered she's pregnant, David then takes it a step further, and he sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, to the front line of the battle to have him killed. You know, one of the more interesting things for me in the story of Bathsheba is the debate that people often get into over Bathsheba's culpability in this particular relationship. People often ask, well, what was Bathsheba doing bathing outside in full view of King David? But when I look at the text in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I don't see any indication of any blame being put at the feet of Bathsheba. In fact, if you look at verse 27 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, the text says the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The text doesn't blame, put any blame at the feet of Bathsheba. It's David's sin. And so, for you and I this morning, in terms of an application from her inclusion in Jesus' genealogy, one of the things I would submit to you is that, again, the text highlights the magnitude of David's sin. And David seems to have exploited Bathsheba and uses his power to get from her what he wants. And then again, to cover up his sin, he has Uriah murdered. And yet here, Bathsheba appears in Matthew's telling of the genealogy of Jesus that leads to the Redeemer. 
God's grace, what I want you to understand, God's grace extends to Bathsheba, but God's grace also extends to David. God's grace is sufficient for the exploited, and God's grace is sufficient for the exploiter, as both David and Bathsheba are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Well, the final woman I want to look at this morning before we look at one man is Mary, there in verse 16, the mother of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, notice verse 16, tells us Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, Mary's story is also very interesting. We're going to actually take a more in-depth look at the story of Mary and specifically Joseph next week. But for now, I just want you to imagine this in your mind for a moment. Here is Mary, a young girl, a teenager, pregnant out of wedlock, claiming to be a virgin, and she was, almost cast aside by her fiancé, Joseph, if God hadn't stepped in and intervened and appeared to Joseph in a dream. But when you really think about the story, this is an amazing story, isn't it? And so maybe to help you imagine this scene in your mind, let's put it in a different context. I want you to imagine if you heard this story today. Like if you opened up the Dallas Morning News and you read a story about some young teenage girl in a small hick town in Texas, let's say College Station. <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs> or let's say Norman, Oklahoma, I don't care. <laughs> but imagine you read this story of a young girl in her early teens who's pregnant and yet claims to be a virgin. Would you believe her for even a millisecond? You wouldn't. And yet, the amazing thing is that by God's grace, God chooses Mary to be conceived while yet a virgin. Conceived by the Holy Spirit to give birth to Jesus the Messiah. Five amazing women. Five kind of ugly stories. But let's take a look at one more. I want you to notice verses 11 and 12 as we jump back and look at one man, one very interesting man in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, notice verses 11 and 12. It says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Let's talk about this guy, Jeconiah, for just a minute. Do you see that name, Jeconiah? This, it can be a little bit confusing because Jeconiah actually has multiple names in the Old Testament. Jeconiah is known by Jeconiah. He's known by Coniah. And he's also known by Jehoiachin. If you've read the book of 2 Kings, you've probably come across that name, Jehoiachin, because he was the last of the evil kings of Judah. He reigns for only a hundred days before the Babylonians come in under Nebuchadnezzar and send the kingdom of Judah into exile. But his name is Jeconiah or Coniah or Jehoiachin. 
And here's why he's really important and why he's a very fascinating story. It's because Jeconiah is the last direct heir to the Jewish crown. He's the last direct heir to the Jewish crown, and yet in the book of Jeremiah chapter 22, you could jot down Jeremiah 22 verse 30, Kaniah or Jeconiah or Jehoiachin is cursed. There in the book of Jeremiah 22 verse 30, God says through the prophet Jeremiah that a descendant of Kaniah will never sit on the throne of David. God says, let me say that again, in Jeremiah 22, that a descendant of Kaniah, Jeconiah Jehoiachin, will never sit on the throne of David. And so that's a bit of a problem when we read that he is in the fallen family tree of Jesus. If no blood descendant of Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin can ever reign as king in Judah, then why is he included here in Jesus' genealogy? How can Jesus be the Davidic king if Jeconiah is mentioned here in his genealogy? And the answer, I want you to notice again verse 16. Notice what Matthew does here. He's tracing this line. But then notice what happens in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So this cursed line of Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, or Kaniah comes here in Matthew to Joseph. Joseph is a blood descendant of Kaniah, Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah. So Joseph, or any of Joseph's blood descendants, cannot ever be the king. Because the bloodline is cursed. But Mary's bloodline is pure. And so Jesus is conceived not by Joseph and Mary, Joseph carrying that cursed bloodline, but Jesus is conceived through Mary and the Holy Spirit. This is one of the many reasons why the virgin birth is so important. Because Jesus does not inherit the cursed bloodline of Jeconiah. Jesus is adopted by Joseph, and as the firstborn, he gets all the legal rights to the throne. But Jesus doesn't inherit the cursed bloodline. His bloodline is pure. This is an amazing way that God works sovereignly and amazingly to both hold intact that curse on the bloodline of Jeconiah and yet make sure that the Messiah is born. So in terms of application from this ugly story, the story of Jeconiah and his cursed bloodline through Joseph teaches us that God takes sin very seriously. God takes sin very seriously, even to the point of cursing the bloodline of Jeconiah. But the second thing I want you to see here is that God, here in the story of Jeconiah, we learn that God will stop at nothing. God will stop at nothing. Even a virginal birth, God will stop at nothing to bring his grace into the ugliness of our stories. All in all, as you take a look at these six 
ugly stories, which with each and every one of them, you see how God intervenes sovereignly through miraculous means, through really strange marriages, by using very ugly stories in order to preserve the line of the Messiah. And by the way, these are just six of the names. There's an ugly story in every other one as well. If you were to take take time to look at each of the people mentioned here, you would find even more ugliness. Abraham, who on multiple occasions basically prostituted out his own wife in order to save his own skin. You have Jacob, who was one of the biggest liars in the Old Testament. David, again, who was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon, who had a thousand wives and concubines and was partially responsible for splitting the kingdom of Israel into two. You have Manasseh, one of the worst kings of Judah, who reintroduced idolatry into the land. This is ugly story after ugly story after ugly story. And that then brings me to the major point I want to make this morning. And that is, as ugly as these stories are, the biggest shock for all of us should not be that Jesus came from a line of sinners because we all are sinners. And every human being who ever lived except for him is a sinner. No, the biggest shock of this story is that Jesus would actually die for these sinners, us included. Our major takeaway this morning should simply be an amazement that God would go to such great lengths and depths to save people like you and like me. I hope that this Christmas season our hearts are captivated by the love of God in sending Jesus to die for us sinners. I love the story of the great English pastor Richard Baxter who was once commenting on John 3.16 and specifically the phrase, whosoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. But he said this, I thank God for that word, whosoever. If God had said that there was mercy for Richard Baxter, I am so vile a sinner that I would have thought he must have meant some other Richard Baxter. But when he says whosoever, I know that includes me, the worst of all Richard Baxters. And that beautiful truth is something worth celebrating. And I want to invite you to do just that in these next few weeks. There on the back side of your outline, your one thing for this week is to plan to attend our upcoming Christmas events as a way to celebrate. And that's what we're doing. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, our Savior, of Jesus who came and took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin and for my sin, our ugliness that we brought upon him. The events upcoming are, again, our jazzy Christmas concert tonight at 7 o'clock, our Rejoice concerts on December 18, our, our Christmas Eve services. I'd love to see you at those as we get the opportunity to celebrate God's gift of Jesus to us. Again, the good news I have for you here in Matthew chapter 1 
is the reminder that Jesus came to save ugly sinners like you and like me. And I want to pause and give you the opportunity here in this room or watching online. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never believed that Jesus came and he laid down his life for you and for me in your place, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to put your faith in him. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the descendant of David died for ugly sinners like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Bathsheba, even like his own mother Mary. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died for ugly sinners like Richard Baxter, like Jace Cloud, the son of ugly. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died for ugly sinners like you, like me, like all of us. And that's what we get to celebrate this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we are, uh, first and foremost, we confess that uh, we are sinners. We all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We all have the ugliness of the stain of sin. And yet, Father, in your grace and in your mercy, we're so grateful that at this time of year especially, we get to celebrate and rejoice that you sent your Son, who left the glories of heaven, lived a perfect life, the unblemished Lamb, who laid down his life so that we might live. Father, thank you for taking away the ugliness of our sin and putting it on your Son. Thank you for giving to us as a gift by your grace, our redemption, and the very righteousness of Christ our Savior. Father, thank you that we have reason above all else to rejoice, to praise you, and to sing and lift up our voices to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.